morning I got up and uh, recognized that, and it fits in so well with the message of encouragement this morning, and had a new direction that I believe is, is going to be important for you. Um, the title of this message is A Prayer for 2020, and, and it comes from Psalm chapter 20. So Psalm 20 for 2020. That's as creative as I can get. And so we're just going to go with that. But I'm going to ask that if you have your Bibles with you, would you stand with me as I read this to you this morning? And then I want to take some time just taking it apart and applying it to us as individuals and as a church. Psalm 20. May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of God, the God of Jacob, protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May he remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. May he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. May we shout for joy over your victory and lift up our banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all your requests. Now this I know. The Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. Lord, give victory to the king and answer us when we call. Father God, I now pray that as we take this 20th Psalm and apply it to this new year of 2020, that there will be aspects of what you are declaring to us today that would come alive to us and that we would have a deep understanding that you know what's happening and that you will lead us in victory. And so, Lord, I pray now that you would bless these next few moments. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I believe that Psalm 20 is a New Year's prayer. It's appropriate for a new year. It was taken and written during a time that was early in David's rule, and he composes this psalm that the people might sing it when he, as king, went forth to battle. And if it were to broken, be broken down, you would find in verses 1 through 5 that it contains a prayer uh, of the people for their king. And in verses 6 through 8, reflects the response of the king to their prayer. And then verse 9 is a shout of benediction in which all the people raise together. As I have examined what we are facing as we're looking at our futures today, I want you to understand that there are parts of this um, psalm that I believe will apply directly to where we are in life and where we are as a church and perhaps where you are as an individual and families. And in the first part of this prayer for the future, as we call it, there are five facets that I want to highlight for you. And the first one is this. The first is simply a general request for God's protection. Are there any of you here this morning that as you're looking at the year 2020, recognize that you need God to be your protector? May I see your hands. The scripture says, may the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. This is a prayer for the future. 
This is a prayer for 2020. What kind of year will 2020 be anyway? We, we are not sure. Certainly looking at it from a moral and a political and international scene, the prospects don't look all that encouraging. Will trouble break out somewhere new that we are unaware of? What will happen? Will our soldiers deploy to other places or will they come home? What's about the church? What about us as we face 2020? We are preparing for a transition that I hope will take place this year. It'll be a time of change, a time of coping with a new environment. Being in our minds at a home that is not yet ours, recognizing we desperately need the room and the parking. How will all of that happen? Is this church ready for transition? All of these are questions that we face. It's a year that also has some opportunities to it. Some of you will look back on this year and it will be a year of thrills. A year of wonderful time that God has had for you. Some of you are facing this year and personally it doesn't look all that encouraging. Maybe you are facing some bleak situations and you don't have a whole lot of prospects for them improving or maybe things look great and you can't wait to dig in the year. Whatever perspective that you are facing this morning, this New Year's psalm reminds us that no new year is without its difficulties. It says, may the Lord answer you when you are in distress. You'll notice that it didn't say if you are in distress. I'm encouraged by the fact that God knows everything about our life and knows what is going to face us and knows that there will be times that we will be in distress and that the key to knowing what to do in those moments is the fact that we know his presence in the time of distress. The psalm simply reminds us that when we head into a day of trouble, whether the trouble is for a state or a nation or international or us personally, when we head into that day of trouble, it's not an easy thing to fight battles. How many of you have recognized battles are not easy to fight? They're difficult times. But when we get to them, we are to ask God to help us because only God is adequate for the situations that he will lead us to in 2020. So David gives us this general prayer right off the beginning. And he says, here's the way we are to pray for God's protection. But then there's a really fascinating addition that he adds to that. He adds this unique phrase to the general prayer. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. I look at that and go, why would you choose Jacob? The name of the God of Jacob to assure us that he's watching out for us in our time of, of, of distress. Why doesn't he use a more familiar term? Why doesn't he say, may the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Or, or why doesn't he think that, you know, let me use the name of people who in their lifetime we look at them. You know, he could have said the, the God of Joseph. Now, that's a guy that when he faced distressful times seemed to overcome them all the way through his life. And you would think if he's talking about distress, why not say the God of Joseph protects you? He uses Jacob. And I looked at this and I said, why is Jacob selected? And it's really an intriguing question. In fact, when David closes his life in 2 Samuel 23.1, you will find David giving his last words. And he starts his last words as a prayer of the Lord again by invoking the God of Jacob. And through a number of psalms that 
David writes, he refers to God this way, as the God of Jacob, which meant to me that evidently, from David's point of view, he and God have a secret. And it's something that he, God, and David, and Jacob must have a lot in common. The way that God worked in the life of Jacob must be the way that God was asking David to work, not only in his life, but in the life of his country and in the life of we, his people. So what is this clue and how can we apply it? When he would say, I'm praying that God would protect you and that he would protect you in the name of the God of Jacob. For those of you that have grown up in the church, you probably are familiar with the story of Esau and Jacob. And for those of you that may be too new to Christ, you may not be aware, but Jacob was a part of twins that were being born and his brother Esau was born directly in front of him and literally the Bible tells us that as Esau was born, Jacob grabbed his brother's heel. It's almost like there's a fight to see who's going to be born first. Esau is born and pulls Jacob out as he's grabbing onto his brother's heel. So his name literally means heel grabber. I am so glad my mom and dad decided on my name before I was born rather than naming me the first thing that comes to their mind after I was born. But his name also means deceiver. And surprisingly, through a contrast in the promise of God, his mother was told that the younger son would rule the older son. And so right from day one, the promise was given to Jacob. But, but Jacob is a type of person who from his earliest years never rested in the promises of God. He was a manipulator. He was a wheeler dealer. If there ever was one, it seemed like his whole life and everything that was recorded in scripture was he was wheeling and dealing. He manipulated his brother out of his birthright. He convinced his father through an elaborate array of deception that he received the blessing rather than his older brother. Even when he spent 20 years with his father-in-law Laban, who was also a wheeler dealer, if you read that passage of scripture, Jacob left after 20 years being far richer and far more possessive of everything than he ever did when he came. And then Jacob was so afraid after 20 years of living this way that when he was going to be reunited with his brother, he began to create a plan in his own mind of, of, of what can I do that when I see Esau again, he doesn't kill me for everything that I've done to him. Now, for those of you that have brothers and sisters, maybe you have said those words. What can I do so that they don't kill me next time I see them? But this was Jacob. And there are some people that give gifts to others in order to manipulate the situation that they would be liked better. So he considered himself, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come to the river, and I'm going to send stuff across first for Esau. So I'm going I'm to send gifts over. And then being the man, of being protective of his family like he was known to be, he said, okay, now I'm going to send my family over first. You're going to send the wives, the children, you're going to go over first, and if he doesn't kill you, then maybe, maybe then I'll be able to come across and things will be okay. And so here is this man who all of his life had been a struggle for him. He struggled against his father. He was never the favorite kid. He struggled against his older brother. He struggled against his father-in-law. He struggled against many of his children, and when he struggled that night after sending his family across the river, he stays all night by himself just to make sure that everything on the other side is okay, and in the middle of the night, the angel of the Lord shows up, and they have a wrestling match. And finally, when he will not let go the angel of the Lord renames him. 
and calls him Israel, which means the one who struggles. And so David, in this prayer, says to us, I want you to pray for protection in the name of the God of Jacob. And it would seem to us that would be a unique person. But I think what David is trying to convey here, and it it means something to me, is David recognizes in his own character that of all of the biblical characters, I'm way more like Jacob than I am like Abraham. My nature is, is way more like Jacob than it is Joseph. And so I've got this conniving attitude. I've got this manipulation, and I've even worked at things in my life, you know, and, and so... David says to us at the very beginning of this, he goes, listen, I want you to pray for protection, but I want you to understand that the way God works with Jacob and that nature, he will work with us. And so David, I believe, was just making an identifying thing that if you're going to look at characters, I'm way more like Jacob. That seems to be my character more than anything else. And yet, God never failed Jacob. And so God is simply telling us that We need to turn to him in our time of distress that if we're going to trust him with a problem, then let me be and have the protection of the God of Jacob so that I can cease from my striving and I can rest in what I can do and I will let God do what he does best. And some of you today simply need to take whatever it is that's going on in your life or in your family or in your home or in your job and open your hands and say, I just give it to you. The God of Jacob. So God is with us in distress. And no one of us at this point knows what personal distresses we're going to go through this year. But here is the request from God to protect us no matter what we face. Secondly, the second thing that is in this prayer for the future is a specific request designating God as the source of our help. He says, may he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. Now the sanctuary in David's day was called the Tent of Meetings or it was called the Tabernacle and it was a temporary shelter. Later Solomon built a permanent temple but in the center of this tabernacle, in the center of the Tent of Meetings was the Holy of Holies and in there sat the Ark of the Covenant where the commands and the mercy seat which stood for God's grace covering his law was at. And it was a symbolic representation of the fact that God's people who were in fellowship with him, that God protected them and that he heard them. And the psalmist often described God as being enthroned under the cherubim. It was a a wonderful place representing the presence of the Lord. And that they would know that God's help and his presence came not only from the sanctuary, not only from the Holy of Holies, but also from Zion, which is Jerusalem, the capital city, the city of peace. And the people were to be confident as they went into battle that God was with them and confident in the fellowship that came from being in his sanctuary. Today we look at this verse and say, what is our sanctuary? Obviously, we don't have a tent of meetings and there's, there's you know, no Ark of the Covenant. I want you to know something, that when Jesus died on the cross, the scripture tells us that the curtain that separated the people from the presence of the Lord was torn from the top to the bottom. In other words, this was not a man-made tear, it was a God-made tear. And in that moment, he ripped that and opened up for each of us where we can enter into the presence of God. I no longer need a priest to go and speak to God for me. I can do it myself. I'm part of the priesthood of believers. Everything has been open to each of us. And so now the sanctuary to us means something. 
Now, one of the things that I have loved about this past week is I noticed that I'm in a group of about 62 people that are reading the Bible together, and I recognize that some people started on the 5th and some started on the 1st, and so we may all be on different days, but I'm loving the comments that people are making as I recognize we are in sanctuary together. We are ingesting the Word of God, the living bread of life, which, which comes to us and fulfills us and strengthens us. And how many of you have already discovered that God knows how to read your mail when you're reading His Word? He knows right where you are at. And so He says to us that we will be sustained when we face the distresses of the world by running to the sanctuary, running to the word, running to prayer, running to his presence, that there's something about his presence that changes everything, changes our perspective. Now, generally, I know that if I get a flat tire, I do not drive around on a flat for very long. I go someplace and get it fixed. When things go spiritually wrong in our life, one of the things that often happens to us is that we begin to feel a distance between us and the presence of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord is pushing us to, to run back to Him, and the enemy begins to whisper in your ear, He will not receive you, that He is displeased with you, and that that distance is caused by Him and not by you. And what happens is we get more and more comfortable not coming into the house of the Lord. By the way, he tells us that days like this are important. We need to gather together and encourage one another. And that gathering together, we encourage and pray and, and, and believe and worship together. There's something that happens in our soul as a result of gathering together. But also, that when we come back into his presence, we find his arms wide open. The enemy draws you away from the sanctuary. The spirit pushes you toward the sanctuary. And you must be aware of which influence you will allow to work within you. And I am convinced that God deposits something into us when we meet with him. And that he gives us help, which then leads us to the third request for the future. And it's really a basis for the confidence that we have. It says, may he remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. That again refers to a period of time where they offered blood sacrifices. It represented a life that was taken so that their sin might be forgiven before Jesus came and died. And this psalm, as applied to us, means that when you're facing a time of distress, how wonderful is it to recognize in your life that you're all right with God? Now, last week I was talking about, as we're reading the Word, how we are going to respond to what the Word reveals to us, whether it be conviction. But one of the things I said is, how are you going to respond when God approves of you? We don't often think about that. I believe that that's what this verse is telling us. Is there is a joy that comes to our heart when we wake up in the morning and know, I am right with God. I have given him honor because he is due. I have, I have obeyed his scripture. I am living a life that brings pleasure to him. As a result of that, the distresses that we face in the world don't come with guilt for us, but come with a sense of freedom because I know, regardless of what happens, I am right with God. And there's a peace. The scripture describes it as a peace that surpasses your ability to understand. This is why when people look at you in the middle of your distress and you are not freaking out, they're going, what is wrong with you? I'm right with God. I have, I have such a peace. Well, you don't know what's going to happen. Exactly. I don't know what's going to happen. But I am right with God. And as a result of that, I can rest 
in his hands and his protection. And if you don't have that assurance here today, here's what the scripture says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That does not sound like a God that wants distance between you and him. That sounds like a God that is inviting you in whatever condition you're in. Come unto me and I will make you whole and you can wake up in the morning with a peace in your heart that you are right with God. The fourth thing that in this prayer is, God, would you give us success in the future? It says, may he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. I don't know about you, but I am great at praying this prayer. This is one of my favorite ones. And as I was looking at it, I begin to recognize that oftentimes what happens is that we begin to pull little verses sometimes out of the context that they're out, and we say, Lord, this is the promise I'm standing on. I am standing on that you will give me the desires of heart and that you'll make all my plans succeed. That's my promise for today. But you know what? There are two conditional verses that come before that. You see, if you've lived in verse 2 and you've lived in verse 3 under the protection and the sanctuary and are right with God, what happens here is that your desires will already have been filtered through the heart of God. And your plans will be what he lays upon your heart. And so rather than having to butcher the scripture, we just start with the part and say, okay, Lord, I've been in your sanctuary. I've met you at the altar. You're going to purify my, my desires. So whatever it is that comes into my mind and through my heart, I am believing it is birthed of the spirit. And I will go forward in those things knowing that it is your desire that my dreams succeed and that the plans that we put in place come together. I don't know how many of you are dreamers. I was a great dreamer. All my teachers put that on my report card all through my elementary years. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. DeMint, your son is a dreamer. Oh, so good at it. How many of you are planners? There's a difference between the two. Do you know we need one another? Because dreamers have great big vision and have no idea how to get there. Planners have no vision but know how to go someplace. And the scripture addresses both of these in the same verse saying, listen, I'm going to give you dreams and I'm going to give you the plans of how to get there. Do you know, do you know what a comfort that is to a pastor? To know that if God gives a vision, he's also going to succeed in the plans for us to get there. How many of you have a dream for 2020? I see hands all over the place. If you don't have a dream, would you ask God to give you a dream? He does not want you to be dreamless. That's the world that withdraws the dreams from us. God wants you to dream. And for all of you who are planners and have had trouble dreaming, just ask him, Lord, would you open that heart of my mind so that I can begin to dream? And then for all of you who are planners, we need one another because we are going to ask God together that every step of the way is led by his Holy Spirit. He said, may he give you the desires of your heart, your dreams, and make all of your plans succeed. You see, the plans are the day-to-day -day choices that we make that will fulfill the desires and bring us to the dreams. And God grants you all of the desires of your heart and make all of your plans succeed. And the only way to have that happen is if the plans every step of the way succeed. A few years ago, I taught a course in our district school of ministry for those that were seeking to, to get credentialed and 
I remember sitting there that day, the first day in front of the class, and, and I knew that there were students that desired an A. Everybody, if I'd have asked them, how many of you want an A? Everybody would have raised their hand. There were a few stu students that had planned to get an A. And there was a difference between the two. And so when we come to these things, we recognize that in order for us to have the desires succeed, God has to bless the plans along the way. And so we come today at 2020, we say, God, would you give us help to make sure that our objectives and our dreams are right with you, the specific things you're laying upon our heart, so that we can begin to see the plans to help those dreams come to pass. Set goals, make plans, and Lord, lead us so that we achieve them together. Because some of you have dreams to dream. And some of you have plans to succeed. And the fifth thing that's in this prayer for the future is a promise of celebration. It says this, we will shout for joy when you are victorious and will lift up the banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all your requests. This is a great verse, but let me give you some perspective on it. They were given the command to shout victoriously before they had ever even entered into the battle. The battle hadn't started yet. Theoretically, they didn't know if they were going to win or lose. But by faith, they knew that if God was in it, he was going to give them the victory. And so they said, when it's all said and done, we're going to lift up our hands and we're going to shout and we're going to wave the banners of God's victory. I believe that there's a prophetic nature to this verse that we need to grab today. I am so tired of a church that's defeated and discouraged and we're wandering around with our heads down and we're wondering what calamity is going to come next. I see in this verse for 2020, the Lord beginning to say, it's time for the church to begin to shout the victory before the battle starts. He's a victorious God. He's not worried about the outcome. He already knows what's going to happen. He says, I want the church to lift up their hands as banners and begin to shout and wave them in victoriously because I am the Lord, their God. I'm their protector. I'm their leader. I'm their anointer. I'm going to take care of the plans. And together the church will march in unity together and celebrate victoriously. Now, some of you may not have ever attended our first service, but I told them today, they're the quieter group <laughs> than this group. I firmly believe it's because you've had two cups of coffee before you get here. <laughs> and some of them hadn't had any yet. But even the first service was able to begin to recognize the value of praising victoriously before the battle begins. Do you know how that's got to freak Satan out? He's getting ready to array an army against you, and you're shouting victory, and he's going, what is up with that? In the Old Testament, as David was expressing this confidence in victory before the battle, he says this, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now, let me give you a little history of this so that you'll understand the power of what he was saying here. The Old Testament law prohibited the children of Israel from maintaining a standing army. You can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 16. They could only get people to serve when there was an emergency. And they were told to trust in the Lord for their defense and their victory. And you can read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 33. And that's kind of a scary thing when you think about it from our perspective. 
Because we think we need military hardware and we need military might, but the scripture understands that moral might is always superior to external forces. Being morally right is more powerful than any army that the world may throw our way. And dependence upon the Lord has got to be our greatest advantage. Most dreaded the war machines of David's day. There were chariots. Israel had no chariots. The chariots of the enemy had a size advantage on them. They literally could come, pulling uh, horses pulling them and mow people down. And then sticking out of the wheels of these chariots were blades that literally could cut the legs right off of anybody that they went through. And so Israel didn't have any chariots in David's day. In fact, the foot soldiers, as they're facing an army full of chariots and full of horses, would naturally be filled with fear because it doesn't look naturally like there's any hope whatsoever. But the Bible tells us that David literally literally captured hundreds and hundreds of chariots. Don't know how it happened, except that God was there. And because the Lord was with him, so he recites this prayer on behalf of the people that our trust is not in something external like horses and chariots, but our trust is in the Lord our God who is more powerful than any weapon that can be formed against us. And we tend to base our happiness on the forces that we have arrayed around us. And the Lord says, stop doing that. Just stop. Because I am fighting this battle for you. And because I am, it doesn't matter what the enemy has arrayed against you. Greater is he that is in me and in you. You know what? Put your hand on your heart and repeat that to yourself. Some of you need to believe that. Greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. Do you believe it? Do you really believe it? Because it'll change your 2020 if you will live in that way. We have what God has given us. You see, it's one thing to believe it intellectually, the sense that God is going to be with you in this year ahead. It's another thing to literally place everything in your life and give it and lay it at his feet and say, Lord, this year is your year, and I will trust you in all of it. I'm going to ask the worship team if they'd please come. And as they do, let me just say, verse 9, the people give a shout of response when they say, Lord, save the king. This is where the British Empire gets that phrase, God save the king. It's right out of Psalm 29. But our king today is no longer David. Our king is David's son, Jesus. He laid down his life for us. He totally trusted the Father. He therefore, in the words of verse 8, has risen up and he stood firm. And God has saved the Messiah, Jesus. It looked as if he was defeated, but he rose from the grave and he overcame death and hell and the grave and lives victoriously forevermore. And he resides within us through the power of his living Holy Spirit. Lives within you. And if you're here today and you don't know him, it tells us in Romans 8.32... He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? All things. In other words, there is no limit to what God wants to put into the cabinet of your spiritual life. 
I'm going to ask that you would stand with me this morning, and I recognize that we don't have nearly, nearly enough room at the altar, so I'm going to ask those of you in the overflow, would you, would you stand in the seats between the front section and the overflow? If you just line up together there. For those of you that can, I want you to squeeze around the altar. Today we are going to begin to sing songs of victory. We're going to put our trust in the Lord. Do you know that the banners that are mentioned may also be described as your hands? And, and, and let me tell you something. I know some of you come from backgrounds and you're saying your church is way out there. You know, we never raise hands and you, you talk way too loud. I, just, I get excited about the things of God. But I do believe that there's something to be learned when the sanctuary and the people of God together begin to lift up our banners and sing victory before the battle begins. You see, when you lift up your hands and you sing, what you're doing is you're saying to God, I surrender. I surrender to you, Lord. Here's, here's what I mean by that. I'm holding nothing in my hand that will be a weapon that I will fight you with whatever you want to do in my life. That's why we lift our hands and open our hands and, and praise. It's a banner of a testimony that, God, I surrender to whatever you want to do. And we're going to start 2020 by surrendering to the King of kings and Lord of lords. We're going to start 2020 by saying, God, I am standing on this 20th Psalm. It becomes mine, and I'm going to hang on to it. Regardless of the distress that may come my way, I'm singing victory in Jesus my Savior forever!